Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. Joe, quick question here. Who is your favorite goddess? Oh, man. Well, it depends on if you ask me while I've just been listening to some some Stevie Nicks jams, <laughs> uh, if I'm going to go into the Fleetwood Mac kind of Rhiannon territory. Yeah. Uh, but if not, I think I'm going to stick with something that actually I wonder if there's a linguistic relationship between Rhiannon and the one I'm about to talk about because it's kind of a cognate. The Sumerian goddess Inanna. You familiar with Inanna? Well, she's the one who rings like a bell through the night. No, no, no. That's also Rhiannon. But Inanna does sort of take to the sky like a bird in flight. And <laughs> I don't – maybe sometimes she promises you heaven. She is definitely the darkness and she rules her life like a fine skylark. But uh, let's not get <laughs> sidetracked. Inanna has hymns of her own that we can sing. And I think we actually should read some in a second here. So Inanna is a Sumerian goddess. She is also known as the Akkadian Ishtar. I think that there – this is believed to be the same goddess essentially across a different stream of tradition. And uh, the deep history of the Mesopotamian goddess has lots of different things associated with it. So in some sense, Inanna is the goddess of the storehouse, meaning that she rules over the stores of things like dates and meat and grain. But she's also a goddess of fertility and sex and war and slaughter. So she's got all of this interesting stuff gathered up under her feathers. I don't know why I said feathers. I don't think she's a bird. <laughs> Under her dark uh, wings. Uh, that's a different That's a different song. Uh, but uh, it, it's interesting because all the things that she is encompassing here, um, this, it's the domains that we that would cover in an, a vast pantheon of, uh, of gods and goddesses from other traditions, all wrapped up into one. Yeah, and to give a sense of the power of Inanna, I, if, Robert, if you will comply, I think we should have a reading of some excellent ancient texts. Let's do it. Trivia question, in fact. I didn't know this until this episode. Who do, you, who do you think is the earliest named author in all of world literature? Hmm. Well, it, uh, certainly it would probably tie to this uh, time period, but I, I had no idea who the individual would be. Well, very often we find ancient texts and carvings, things, you know, uh, marks made in clay and cuneiform and stuff. And we don't know who the author is. It doesn't say like, you know, Jeff wrote this clay tablet inscription. Mm -hmm. But a strong contender for the title of the earliest named author in all of world literature is Inheduanna, a 23rd century BCE Mesopotamian high priestess and poet. 23rd century BCE. Wow. 4,300 years ago, this priestess and poet, uh, she was the daughter of the Akkadian king Sargon the Great. And she's named as the author of a collection of hymns and poems, many of which are devoted to the praise of this Sumerian goddess Inanna. And uh, I, th I think we should read some selections from Inheduanna's hymn, The Exaltation of Inanna. And this is from a translation that I found on the electronic text corpus of Sumerian literature based out of the University of Oxford. Now, the poem is way too long to read in its entirety, but I put together some abridged selections. So here we go on The Exaltation of Inanna. Lady of all the divine powers, resplendent light, righteous woman clothed in radiance, beloved of An and Urak, mistress of heaven with the great pectoral jewels, she loves the good headdress befitting the office of Ain Priestess. Like a dragon, you have deposited venom on the foreign lands. 
Lady who rides upon a beast whose words are spoken at the holy command of An. The great rights are yours. Who can fathom them? Destroyer of the foreign lands, you confer strength on the storm. Beloved of Enlil, you have made awesome terror weigh upon the land. Because of you, the threshold of tears is opened, and people walk along the path of the house of great lamentations. In the van of battle, all is struck down before you. With your strength, my lady, teeth can crush flint. You charge forward like a charging storm. My lady, the great Anuna gods fly from you to the ruined mounds like scudding bats. They dare not stand before your terrible gaze. They dare not confront your terrible countenance. Who can cool your raging heart? Your malevolent anger is too great to cool. Lady Supreme over the foreign lands, who can take anything from your province? Blood is poured into their rivers because of you, and their people must drink it. And then there's a section that's talking about if a city has not acknowledged itself to be hers, uh, if the city doesn't say, I belong to Inanna, quote, Its woman no longer speaks affectionately with her husband. At dead of night, she no longer takes counsel with him, and she no longer reveals to him the pure thoughts of her heart. I, in Hedu Anna, will recite a prayer to you. To you, holy Inanna, I shall give free vent to my tears like sweet beer. Be it known that you are lofty as the heavens. Be it known that you are broad as the earth. Be it known that you destroy the rebel lands. Be it known that you roar at the foreign lands. Be it known that you crush heads. Be it known that you devour corpses like a dog. Be it known that your gaze is terrible. Be it known that you lift your terrible gaze. Be it known that you have flashing eyes. Be it known that you are unshakable and unyielding. Be it known that you always stand triumphant. The light was sweet for her. Delight extended over her. She was full of fairest beauty. Like the light of the rising moon, she exuded delight. Robert, how would you even begin to characterize this awesome mixture of brutal, merciless conquest and all these statements about radiance and beauty? Oh, I mean, well, she's not to be trifled with. Yeah. And she's really on, on, on par with the sun in terms of just beautiful, radiant, but 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 also with all this destructive potential. I think it's fun. it talks about delight. This is, yeah. this is a poem with delight in it. And also, it, they will make you drink the blood. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the best I can think is the sun. It, it is delightful to stand in the sun, but you will and can be burned by the sun as well. I mean, it is there's just a, a, a primal and vital energy to her. Now, she in many ways I think here is described as having the qualities of a storm god like mm-hmm. Baal or Marduk or Yahweh or, or, or Zeus or Thor. You know, these these storm war gods where the sky weather deity tends to be associated with conquest and power and killing. Um, but she's also embodied as, you know, resplendence and delight. And she has all these other qualities we see in, in, in other stories about her that she's associated with stores of grain that are necessary for survival, that she's associated with sex and fertility and happiness. And so how does it end up that you've got this one deity who's got all these different qualities gathered underneath her? Yeah, and then what is taken away from her over the the, the, the centuries to follow? That's a good question. You know, uh, in thinking about my own favorite goddess, uh, my mind instantly turned to Thetis uh, because I've I've been interested in mythic sea creatures of late and we've talked about the Iliad uh, quite a bit of late. So I I thought to Thetis, who really throughout the history of written language, she's most well known as the mother of Achilles. Uh Uh-huh. 
uh, you know, the the nearly invincible warrior of the Iliad. And she's commonly described as an immortal uh, Nereid, and uh, she begot Achilles through her union with the mortal uh, Peleus, king of the Myrmidons. And to protect her mortal son, she dipped him by the heel in the river Styx, and she also commissioned Hephaestus to forge his armor and arms, and she petitions Zeus himself on her son's behalf. Now, Thetis never strikes me as, as someone you want to cross or mess with, especially as, as far as uh, the welfare of her son is concerned. Mm-hmm. Uh, she commands a fair amount of power and influence in the Greek pantheon, and, and she herself is the daughter of the sea god Nereus, and her brother-in-law is Poseidon. And yet there is something reduced about her, uh, mm-hmm. this, this, this being that, is, that, that was worshipped as a goddess – uh, seems to be somewhat diminished in the Iliad uh, and in other works. It's like she's been reduced to a supporting role when she once was the star. Yeah. And so I, I, I researched this a little bit and I can't, ran, ran across a 1986 paper titled The Wrath of Thetis by Laura M. Slatkin uh, from Columbia University and it was published in the journal Transactions of the American Philological Association. And she points out that in the Iliad she's, quote, a subsidiary deity who is characterized by helplessness and by impotent grief. And yet, she persuades Zeus to set in motion the, inv- the events of the Iliad. And, uh, and mighty Achilles inv- invokes her name above all others. He asks her to petition Zeus and remind the king of the gods that she is the one who saved Zeus when all the other Olympians wanted to bind him. Mm-hmm. And to be bound, uh, Slatkin points out, is the doom of a god. And Thetis does nothing short of saving the cosmos and maintaining cosmic equilibrium by preventing Zeus from going down like Zeus's own father, Cronus. Though that's kind of funny to suggest that you would be saving the cosmos by saving Zeus because like of what good is Zeus? Zeus is just trash. Yeah, but he, but he's the trash we know, right? Like, yeah. You can imagine a situation where it's like, oh man, these gods, gods are crazy. But at least we kind of have worked out you know, what their, um, their mad passions are. We don't need another revolution so that the other Olympians will rule the roost. I mean, Zeus mostly just does bad stuff. Yeah, but <laughs> it's true. <laughs> it's true. Well, there's something – it's like – it's almost like we make excuses for him as this like bad-tempered, criminal, violent male deity where we're just like, oh, boys will be boys. What a rascal. <laughs> Are we still talking about mythology or are no, we talking I, about current events? No, no, okay. no. I mean I think that – well, hmm. Uh, I think there's something to be said about that and that will tie into today's episode. So uh, Thetis, uh, we're also uh, told in the, the writings of the Greek poet Pindar, uh, was destined to birth a son more mighty than his father. And that's why her, her original suitors, Zeus and Poseidon, both abandoned her love and forced her against her will to marry a mortal instead. Uh, so think of that. There's tremendous power in Thetis. Like she was fated to birth this this child greater than its father. So if she had born the son of Zeus or Poseidon, uh, that would have been a rival to the king of the gods. Right. But the king of the gods, if the king of the gods has a son who's too powerful, he has to fear he will be dethroned. Right. So make her marry a mortal. So at least her mighty son will be mighty in more or less the mortal realm. And certainly Achilles is mortal. That's kind of the – that's the whole theme, this immortal mother and the the son that is doomed to die. 
And Slacken points out that this was an established trope because Thetis has a lot in common with Eos, the, the, gar, the goddess of the dawn and the mother of Memnon, yeah. who we've discussed uh, on the show before. In the Colossi of Memnon episode. Yeah. The established role of an immortal mother looking after her mortal son. Uh, who is doomed to die. Mm -hmm. And the Iliad just sticks uh, to Thetis in this one role, but still invoking the established mythological role of the old Indo-European dawn goddess. Interesting. So Thetis was certainly worshipped as a sea goddess in her time, but this goes beyond the mere limiting of a mighty um, deity to a supporting role in the Iliad. Uh, Slatkin points out that the Laconian traditions identified her as a primordial creatrix. <laughs> so she she is, quote, not simply a cosmic force, but the cosmic force. She not only has power in the sea, but is the generative principle of the universe. Well, that seems to go along with the nature of the sea in creation myths, right? Yeah. Like when you have the sea, you've got the waters. First there is like the darkness and the waters and then you've got creation coming out of that. The waters almost kind of symbolize a, a primordial chaos from which some kind of order can be wrought. And you see that in other creation myths too, like in the, the Tiamat creation myth where Marduk slays Tiamat, mm -hmm. the sea monster, you know, the who represents the water. And is and a then, feminine being. Yeah, and then uses her body to make the world. Yeah. So we've already established this this trend where we see a a often a primordial uh, like all powerful cosmic uh, goddess who is then reduced over time uh, made a a minor role in a story of warring men or a, or a minor deity uh, that is uh, that is overpowered by masculine deities what what happened what, and what potentially is still happening in our culture. Yeah, and on one hand, that kind of male-dominant, misogynist rewriting of, of cultural ideas and mythology and stuff like that, it seems so common that you might not even stop to ask why things are that way, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it just seems like, well, that's always what happens in culture. You know, men think they're better than women and they want to rewrite all of the cultural stories and everything to, to downplay women's roles and make themselves feel more important. And, and so people just say, well, that, yeah, that's just how it is. But why? Wouldn't that be an interesting thing to have an explanation for why that is such a trend. And that's what we're going to be talking about in today's episode. We're going to talk about one hypothesis, one fascinating hypothesis for why this has come to pass. And this was presented in the 1998 book, The Alphabet Versus the Goddess, The Conflict Between Word and Image by American surgeon, author, and inventor Leonard Schlein, who lived 1937 through 2009. Yeah, so in the late 90s when this book was written, Schlein was uh, the chief of laparoscopic surgery at California Medical Center in San Francisco. And apparently he worked at least to some degree in performing surgeries on the arteries supplying blood to the hemispheres of the brain. And just a fun bit of trivia that really has nothing to do with our episode today. But his daughter Kimberly is married to uh, the actor Albert Brooks. And his daughter, Tiffany, is a noted filmmaker and founded the Webby Awards. Stuff to Blow Your Mind, incidentally, is a Webby Award-winning podcast. Oh, is it? I don't see that as a conflict of interest, but I just thought I'd point it out. <laughs> but wait a minute. Albert Brooks? Yeah. Hank yeah. Scorpio? Yeah. Oh. Hank Scorpio himself uh, is connected to this episode. 
Now, before we lay out Schlein's central claim and discuss some of his arguments, I definitely want to say that this is an idea we're discussing because it's interesting and because it raises questions worth investigating and not because we're endorsing it as correct. I'd say this is going to be more in in bicameral mind kind of territory where this is a book that brings up a lot of interesting questions, takes us to a lot of interesting places, but ultimately we're not going to be saying we think that this guy has the right idea. Right. And in many cases, I think that I'll go ahead and say that I'm not convinced by his core thesis and I've got a lot of criticisms about his approach to argumentation. But at the same time, I think a lot of peripheral arguments and observations that come up in this book merit individual analysis. Right. And then he's using he, – he's, to build this hypothesis, he's using, uh, he's using science and he's using history. He's using a, a number of just fascinating cultural examples. So he is uh, – even if we ultimately are not won over by the hypothesis, uh, he supports it with so much fascinating information. And it really does force you to at least re-examine some of these things that we've taken for for granted, like just the, the absence of – or the, for the most part, the absence of goddesses uh, from our, our, our major world religions. OK. So let's start with Schlein's central claim and then back up and, and run through his argument. Well, do, do we have a quote here that will help us get to the heart of Schlein's claim from the beginning? We do. We have at least a couple of, uh, of quotes here and, uh, and certainly he was a, he was a great writer. Uh, so his words capture him best. He writes, quote, There exists ample evidence that any society acquiring the written word experiences explosive changes. For the most part, these changes can be characterized as progress. But one pernicious effect of literacy has gone largely unnoticed. Writing subliminally fosters a patriarchal outlook. Writing of any kind, but especially its alphabetic form, diminishes feminine values and within them, women's power in the culture. Whoa. Now, that is a far-reaching and radical hypothesis, something that if it were true would have profound implications for the whole world. Indeed, and and that's that's kind of the heart of his hypothesis here. Yeah, so whenever you've got these big kind of hypotheses like this – radical claims about something very fundamental about like say the role of of gender egalitarianism or the lack thereof in the world and explaining it through something as widespread as the idea of literacy – you definitely – it makes your ears prick up, right? You know, you, mm-hmm. got, you want to know what this was about. Uh, I've got another quote that expresses part of the core of his idea. It's, quote, literacy has promoted the subjugation of women by men throughout all but the very recent history of the West. Misogyny and patriarchy rise and fall with the fortunes of the alphabetic written word. Another nice uh, summary from uh, from later in the book is, quote, the alphabet through its emphasis on linearity and sequence caused the left side of the brain of those who learned it to hypertrophy, resulting in a marked cerebral dominance of one lobe over the other. Metaphorically, the mind listed to one side as one carrying an unevenly distributed load. So we're talking about like a, a major lasting influence on the way the human brain works. Yeah. Now, Schlein talks – he tells a story in his book and he talks about how he first began to form this thesis when he was touring Greece with this great antiquities guide who kept going to site after site and explaining, OK, what was once here was a shrine to a goddess, a female goddess. But then later it was rededicated to a male god. It's kind of an odd pattern to just see happening over and over in one place after another. If the the tendency is generally 
toward male dominance in the culture and, and patriarchy and misogyny. Why did you have all these female goddesses to begin with and why did the changeover in power to male-dominated pantheons occur? And so Schlein started to wonder what, what would cause all that. Yeah, because basically we do have a wealth of goddesses in the polytheistic tradition, but we see most of them fall out of favor over time. Uh, they're either reduced to minor deities or demigods or or, or certainly they are just the, the feminine at, the, at best really they're the feminine aspect of the same god that also has a masculine aspect as well while the male gods continue to climb up the hierarchy. Because really outside of Hindu Shaktism, which focuses on the feminine aspects of the gods uh, and the cosmos – can you think of any widespread goddess movements outside of Wicca and the neo-pagan goddess movement that is also re you know, rather modern? Well, the key is widespread. If you go into beliefs held by smaller numbers of people, I think you'll get into all kinds of things with, uh, with female deities and, and even uh, you know, matriarchal kinds of pantheons. But the big religions of the world, you know, you've really just got a few that are representing the vast majority of humankind, right? Mm -hmm. And those tend to be the big monotheisms. And then you've also got Hinduism and Buddhism. Right. So uh, as in sort of an informal survey of sorts, I reached out to the folks in the discussion module, uh, which, is our, which is the official Stuff to Blow Your Mind Facebook group, uh, which you should all join if you want to engage in meaningful conversation with other listeners and, uh, and also your hosts here. Uh, but I said, hey, what are, what are some goddesses or divine females that are displayed in your homes? Uh, and, I, and I also open this up to sort of uh, hyper-real religious examples as well, which we'll see. So just a, a quick list of some of the uh, goddesses that were mentioned. Isis, Wonder Woman, the Virgin Mary, mm -hmm. uh, Desire of the Endless, which is a character from uh, the Sandman comic book. Uh, so somebody mentioned sort of an abstract feminist goddess tattoo. Uh, Freya, Princess Leia. Khaleesi from Game of Thrones, um, Mucha's uh, Claire de Lune uh, painting, and also Marlene Dietrich, who uh, was a, an actor, right? Yes, yeah. Uh, Tara, uh, in fact, here is a quote from uh, listener Sari who says, I have several white Taras in my house. She's a Tibetan Buddhist deity uh, thought to help curb ego-driven thoughts and action. Hmm. So I thought this was interesting and I had to ask because I was looking around my own living room and I realized, well, we have several depictions of, of various gods, but they are all masculine. Why do I not have any images of a goddess in here as well? I'm going to have to fix that. Yeah, what's wrong with your living room, man? I know. I've got to, I've got to, I've got to balance it. And the, that brings us back to, uh, to Schlein's theory here. How did this unbalancing occur? Yes, and another side of the theory, of course, would be how come we see goddesses diminished throughout the world uh, for the last few thousand years, but now you've got all kinds of people who say, yeah, I've got Wonder Woman, she's a goddess. Yeah. Where did that come from? Shalane has an answer for that too. Again, not necessarily something we're going to agree with him on, but it's an interesting thing to consider. All right. Well, on that note, we're going to take a quick break. and we come back, we will jump into Shalane's hypothesis. All right, we're back. Now, we're about to get into – Leonard Schlein's hypothesis about what happened with the decline of female-led pantheons of goddess-based religions and led to uh, male-dominated religious ideas and cultures in history. And so he's got a framework that he uses throughout the book to sort of describe these associated ideas of 
types of thinking, sort of perceptual modes, hemispheres of the brain, and a gender identity that are all sort of grouped together into these hemispheres. And I think this grouping could be kind of problematic. We'll talk about it. But what is his basic uh, basic division of the two perceptual modes? All right. So you have the feminine outlook, which is holistic, simultaneous, synthetic, and, uh, and, and, and involves concrete worldviews. So this is sort of the perceptual mode that sees uh, sees things by gestalt, sees everything mm-hmm. at once, that goes by intuition, that works uh, more with concrete images and objects. Yeah, very much bound in image. And then you have the masculine outlook, which is linear, sequential, reductionist, and abstract in its worldview. Okay, so this is more based on uh, non-visual information and uh, sort of uh, sequential analysis of things. Yeah. The feminine is, hey, give me a picture, and then uh, the masculine outlook is, I'd rather have those thousand words. Now, I'm sure a lot of people, you're listening to this and saying like, ah, I, I'm not loving the the like gender associations there with the different types of points of view. And I think that's a fair point to make. Uh, Schlein himself is aware of the fact that these generalizations could be problematic. And he writes, quote, every individual is generously endowed with all the features of both, right? Yes. Yeah, he, he frequently brings up the yin-yang uh, uh, symbol from Taoism uh, as, as the idea of balance between the two. Yeah, so Schlein is obviously aware of the fact that these perceptual modes uh, do not always correspond to the literal divisions of biological sex or of gender identity. But nevertheless, he uses these concepts by by these terms, male and female, to describe them. And I think sometimes throughout the book this leads to trouble because it continually suggests a blurring of the distinction between, for example, the, quote, male perceptual mode, which female primates are perfectly capable of using and even favoring and confusing that perceptual mode with literal males of the species. So this, I think this book is, for one thing, going to be vulnerable to a lot of criticisms of overgeneralization with all kinds of things, actually, but gender is going to be one of them. Yes. So let's, let's talk about some of the, uh, the, the key sources that ground his idea because he didn't – you know, he's very upfront about this. He didn't just uh, dream all of this up. He was basing uh, – he's basing it on the foundation established by other thinkers. Okay. So uh, he, he points to a few of these. First of all, there's Robert Logan's The Alphabet Effect from 1986, which states that, quote, a medium of communication is not merely a passive conduit for the transmission of information, but rather an active force in creating new social patterns and new perceptual realities. There's an intrinsic impact to the use of an alphabet, and the literate worldview is different from one where information comes exclusively via oral communication. Okay, this sounds very parallel to another author that he quotes frequently, which is Marshall McLuhan. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the idea that the medium is the message, right? In some way, that the medium through which information is conveyed actually does change the way your brain works. Yeah, I mean, I instantly think of the uh, you know the, the classic bit of writing uh, advice, uh, or I guess uh, just storytelling advice in general. Show, don't tell. Uh-huh. You know, it is that is in in in, in effect uh, uh, image versus word. But in any case, when you're doing that as a writer, you're using words. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, so it does get get a little complicated. Uh, he also points to the work of anthropologist Claude Levi Strauss. Uh, who touches on the downside of the power of literacy, that it brought with it uh, hierarchical societies and slavery. 
So while one might think to the the current state of Western women and, and credit their rising status to higher levels of education, Schlein argues based on this that, that men and women lived in greater balance in non-literate agricultural societies and that we see some examples of this in pre-literate agrarians' cultures, um, you know, from, from relatively recent times. Okay. So his – proposition here is that we might actually be very surprised at how much gender egalitarianism we would find if we went back in history to times before the written word. Right. He says that, quote, images are primarily mental reproductions of the central world of vision. So he points out that the brain uses – the human brain uses wholeness, uh, simultaneity and synthesis to observe the world. And to gain meaning from alphabetic writing, the brain is forced to depend on sequence, analysis and abstraction. In other words, the way that you take in uh, an open field is different from the way you read a paragraph about what that open field looks like. And so he's saying that this ultimately shapes the mind of men and women in a way that leads to more patriarchy and culture. Yeah, he says it affects the inner, outer, and supernatural realms of the mind. And uh, and yeah, he points back to a time when the goddess in all her forms was the principal deity. And there's there's this wonderful quote that I keep coming back to. Uh, from the book. He says, from the outer rim of history, we begin to learn her name. In Sumer, she was Inanna. In Egypt, she was Isis. In Canaan, her name was Asherah. In Syria, she was known as Estarta. In Greece, Demeter. And in Cyprus, Aphrodite. Whatever her supplicants called her, they all recognized her as the creatrix of life, nurturer of young, protector of children, and the source of milk, herds, vegetables, and grain. Since she presided over the great mystery of birth, people of this period presumed she must also hold sway over that great bedeviler of human thought, death. I brought you into this world. I can take you out. It makes sense, right? Yeah. And again, this, this, this gets back to our, just pr- our ideas of these primordial feminine uh, deities. Meanwhile... Uh, these various deities, he says, they tended to have uh, male consorts who mm-hmm. – and these consorts might be gods of the hunt, you know, uh, uh, representing the, uh, the, the, the hunter-gatherer balance of life. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he was generally a temporary lover to be cast aside or if not that, a son. So she was not – it wasn't even like a king and queen scenario. So when does Shlaine – Proposed that this transition from the uh, female empowering female deity led religions transitioned into the more patriarchal male dominated religions. Well, he points out that around 1500 BC, you had hundreds of goddess based uh, religions enveloping the Mediterranean basin. But by the 5th century CE, you, these had been almost completely eradicated. And by uh, that time, women were prohibited from, he says, conducting a single major Western sacrament. So something is occurring during this time that, uh, that, that depletes the power of the goddess and allows the masculine gods and ultimately the, the, the male abstra- abstraction of the one god in Abrahamic tradition to rise. So obviously uh, it's not going to be so easy to prove that the cause of this change was the alphabet literacy. So how's he going to go about it? Well, he argues that this is ultimately left to, quote, uh, the, the court of what archaeologists call competitive plausibility. 
Yeah, and this is something that the historical sciences often have to resort to, right? You're a historian, you're an archaeologist. You can't run the experiment of replaying history to figure out what happened. So you have to sort of construct a model and see what model best fits the existing evidence and then even more important than that, what accommodates new evidence that gets discovered. Yeah, so – First of all, in the book, Schlein spends a lot of time assembling an overview of human evolution with a focus on gender relations. So he takes us from the scent-dependent ground to the vision-dependent uh, life in the trees. He takes us from uh, packs of male chimps uh, feasting on their kills and sharing with only females in heat to the emergence of uh, estrus-free humans uh, who are thus unshackled uh, uh, from the alpha male structure. Uh, Human uh, physiology, uh, he points out, increasingly ends up demanding fragile young in a birthing process that, that incapacitates the female. Prolonged childhood ends up meaning that, uh, that females uh, can't participate in the hunt as much and often have to stay closer to home and they need support from the males and from each other. And then on top of that, the infant's brain is incomplete. Uh, and language comes in to fill the gaps. And it also enables learning uh, lessons to take place outside of genetic change. Now, that's an interesting idea that the fact that humans are born with maybe fewer instincts about how to behave properly and, and fill their role within the human society than other social animals come born with in theirs, but that humans have this this card they can play, which is the language card. You can transmit a lot of information from one generation to the next through speech. Quote, using speech, one member of a clan learning a lesson that would enhance survival could pass it on to the others within hours instead of eons. And he said this, – this is another bit that I just absolutely love. He says, the new corporate brain called culture hovered like a friendly poltergeist over each tribe of hunter-gatherers. Isn't it funny that culture can be like a person? It's mm -hmm. almost like a person who's not there. It's the invisible queen of your society, right? That culture is a thing that has preferences. It's a thing that tells you what to do and how to act. It's a thing that tells you what's beautiful and what's not, what's tasty and what's not. It's almost sort of like you have this invisible parent who's a corporeal parent, is uh, assembled from the parts of many other parents that came in generations before. Yeah, and it's uh, – he points out that all this probably begins as gesture-based communication, uh, you know, as well as um, the, the visual, uh, you know, features of, of the face, various expressions. Uh, but uh, then these uh, – we end up uh, incorporating vocal communication to free up those hands and the eyes because if you're only speaking in sign language – you can't it, – it diminishes your ability to work a tool at the same time. Mm -hmm. You have to look at the other person. Uh, but if you – as you And begin, to communicate in the dark. Yeah. It also gives you the, the ability to do it in the dark. Uh, so uh, language uh, – vocal language begins to take over. Uh, and it's not only the, the relay of uh, information here but complex discussion and strategy. All of that becomes possible as well. And so you end up having the situation where the hunter-gatherer divide grows for these early humans. And uh, there are ramifications on the way that males and females both experience the world, he argues. Mm -hmm. He says that uh, you know, hunting demands cold-bloodedness tinged with cruelty. But if you're a nurturer, that requires uh, emotional generosity combined with warmth. Uh, so we, we see this emergence of, uh, of different roles, which leads males and females to respond differently emotionally to the same stimuli, different worldviews, different ways of surviving, uh, essentially redesigning the human nervous system in the process. So he's saying that even though men and women are born with these kind of uh, very potent brains that could do whatever they want, the roles that they tend to assume within the group 
force them to favor one kind of emotional state versus the other. You can have this state that's usually assumed by the males, which is this cold, cruel, hunter state of mind, or you can have this state that's more often assumed by the females, which is the intuitive, emotional, nurturing, and educating side. Right. And of course, all of this takes place within a bilobed brain, uh, something that all vertebrates, uh, beginning with fish, actually possess. The human brain lobes look symmetrical, but they're functionally different, uh, what we call hemispheric lateralization. And other vertebrates have this as well, but it's most striking in humans. And then uh, you have the – in between all of this, you have the neuronal fibers that are called the corpus callosum that connect and integrate the two lobes. Each controls the movement of the opposite side. They work in close congress with each other. And we've discussed a lot of this on the show before uh, with all things brain region related. We've learned a lot about function through dysfunction, specifically Mm -hmm. injury and disease affecting specific regions of the brain. And in recent decades, we've learned even more through magnetic stimulation. But uh, essentially, it comes down to this divide. Right brain, you have nonverbal emotional states, dreams, spirituality, music, balance, altered states of consciousness, uh, metaphor, and and holistic uh, views. And uh, just a quick reminder that uh, Julian Jaynes in his bicameral mind uh, uh, hypothesis, uh, this is the, uh, the source of the voices. Yeah. And then with the left brain, we have doing, we have action, we have language, and we have the the complex meshing of competing emotions. And he describes metaphor as, quote, the right brain's unique contribution to the left brain's language uh, capability. Now, if we're to uh, recall uh, some of the interesting thoughts of Julian Jaynes, Jaynes had this whole idea that our our very consciousness itself is built on the possibility of metaphor. I don't know if he's correct about that, but it's certainly true that metaphor undergirds our entire structure of language. There are very few ways of talking that do not involve metaphors. In fact, most of our abstract words are actually based off of metaphors for concrete tasks. Yeah. Schlein, he argues that metaphors essentially bring plasticity to language and they translate emotion into language, birthing poetry, mythology, and more. And then he, to get back to the, the gender divide here, he says that in, in females, and again, I want to remind everybody that this is a, uh, this is a book from the 90s. So yeah. uh, just bear that in mind of, uh, on the science here. Uh, but, but he argued that, uh, that in females, we see 10 to 33% more neuronal fibers in the forward part of the corpus callosum. And that means greater integration, better communication of emotions, increased global awareness, field perception, and the understanding of offspring moods. And they're also generally more adept at multitasking. That's uh, the other part of the argument. Males, on the other hand, they become more adept at shutting down their feelings for you know, improved uh, uh, hunting ability. So the fact that there's more tissue connecting the hemispheres on average in the female brain tends to mean that the brain has a more balanced approach. Whereas the male brain, if it on average has less tissue connecting the two hemispheres, it can tend to be more uh, an isolated kind of left brain approach to things. Right. But then again, the argument here too is also that that that, that male and female brains can ultimately do the same things. Yeah. Because he, he points out that in a, a, a hunter-gatherer society, each hemisphere of the brain uh, is executing tasks for which it is best suited, but you still have to have versatility uh, in case of injury or death, right? What right. happens if the hunter's sick? Uh, then maybe the, the gatherers have to do a little hunting or vice versa. So uh, each sex of the human species has to be able to assume the principal labors of the other. So he's not saying that only men can be hunters and only women can be nurturers. He's saying the opposite, but this 
cultures are generally arranged so that men do the hunting tasks and women do the nurturing tasks. Right. And then he talks uh, a, a fair bit about eyeballs. All right, we will address the eyeball question when we get back. Okay, we're back. It's time for eyeballs. Now, I think this is actually one of the most interesting little side tangents in the book. Uh, it, it only takes a couple pages, but he puts forward this interesting idea about the differing role of light-sensitive cells called rods and cones in the retina and how this may have actually shaped our cognition. I'd never read any thoughts along these lines before, but I, I thought this was one of the most interesting sections of the book. So you've got these different cells in your retina. You've got rods, you've got cones, and rods are extremely light sensitive. Uh, Schlein writes, quote, like tripwires, they detect the slightest movement in a visual field. Distributed evenly throughout the periphery of each retina, they see in dim light and appreciate the totality of the visual field, seeing images as gestalts. So rods are for kind of all at once perception. It's how you get a general sense of a field of vision. Cones, meanwhile, are concentrated densely in the middle of the retina called the macula, and cones have two main functions. One of them is that they pick out differences in color, and the other is that they intensify clarity in the, in the middle of the vision. So uh, he writes, quote, concentrating on one aspect of reality at a time – Cones view the visual field as if through a tunnel. Like rods, cones report to both hemispheres, but the left hemisphere is metaphorically best suited to process their input. So while you've got rods that are used for this all-at-once perception of a general field of vision, cones are used for focus, analysis, and sequential processing. Now, biologically, rods are older than cones. All vertebrates have rods. Uh, cones are only possessed in abundance by a few animals. Schlein points out that cones are mainly present in predatory animals like predatory, predatory birds and predatory mammals and especially in the, in the human primate um, because they allow you to focus on something and to see where it's going and to scrutinize. So the cones isolate elements of the field of vision then look at them one at a time and this is better served by the sequential analytic function of the left part of the brain. So to quote one of Schlein's most interesting smaller hypotheses in the book, quote, the focusing ability of the fovea centralis creates the illusion of time passing because the images seen within this narrow circle of the eye can only be processed one at a time. Because macular vision examined what was and then moved on to what is, it forced the emerging human brain to consider the possibility of what might come next. So Schlein argues that the abundance of cones in the human eye paired with left brain analytical thinking helped give rise to the human sense of time and our tendency for mental time travel into the past and future, something that other animals only have these sort of rare little inklings of. Though there are some inklings and we've talked about that in the past with birds and other animals. Um, but yeah, I think that's an interesting thing to consider, the fact that We've got these eyes that focus on one thing at a time and how that affects our perception of reality. Could that actually generate time as we know it? Yeah, yeah. It, it, this, this is definitely an interesting uh, portion of the book. He also talks about hands a good bit. Yeah. Uh, he, he point, and specifically, this is tying in with uh, the predominance of right-handedness uh, in human beings. Uh, he points out that the left hand controlled by the right brain is more protective than the right. This is the hand that's going to hold a baby. 
Uh, meanwhile, uh, what's the, the right hand doing? Oh, it's the attacking hand, yeah. right? Yeah. Again, except in people who are reversed and are, of course, left-handed. Right. Um, so in all of this, males come to embody death. Females come to embody life. But eventually, men come to identify their own role in reproduction as well. And again, the, the female goddess reigns supreme as this master of life and death, uh, realizing there's a dependency between the two, that I have to kill to eat. I have to consume life in order, in order to live. Mm-hmm. And uh, Shalane writes that the goddess reigns supreme, and then the Kurgan culture rides in on its horses and represses her, replacing her with the, their sky god. Uh, and uh, what he says is interesting about this uh, in this very early example is uh, is that in other cases we see a more primitive of two colliding cultures absorbing the more advanced culture. So you have got these uh, agricultural, more technologically advanced societies that are invaded by these horse-riding Kurgan peoples mm-hmm. and you would expect them to adopt the more advanced agricultural technology of the societies they invaded. Right. Uh, you know, very much like when the uh, when the Mongols invade China and then essentially become Chinese culturally. But that's not what we see here and of course the question is why. All right, so Schlein can't be the first person to offer a hypothesis on what caused the demise of goddess culture. Uh, and so I know he, reference, he references Claude Levi-Strauss a good bit. Does Levi-Strauss have, a, have an argument that he counters? Uh, yeah, so uh, the, the, the Levi-Strauss argument is that the, essentially bride bartering kicked, uh, kicked things off. So men came to realize that they had a role in reproduction. And then women, of course, can procreate earlier than men, so they become a commodity. And eventually all femininity is, is treated as such a commodity. But Schlein opposes this. He says that it doesn't explain the, quote, dramatic zigzagging from masculine to feminine and then back to masculine principles that occurred before, during, and after the first 5,000 years of agriculture. And then another argument, you have anthropologist uh, Sherry Ortner, who credits the uh, a tendency to align the masculine with culture and the feminine with nature. This is definitely a tendency you see uh, in, in literature all throughout the ancient world. Yeah. And, and what, do, what do cultures do? Well, they rise up in the world uh, by advancing their culture. And in doing so, they are mastering nature. They are overpowering nature. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the, the exact language for that is even more severe. But Schlein opposes this and says, well, it doesn't account for the female imagery that is uh, predominant throughout these different mythologies. Meanwhile, you have uh, Frederick Engels, who argues that the goddess perished due to the rise of private property. Of course he did. And he argues that this, this becomes a thing as nomadic hunter-gatherers uh, you know, give way to agriculture. Uh, so you can own land, and then it, it follows that you can own women. Now, Schlein opposes this. He says that it doesn't explain the fall of the goddess. He points to the work of uh, William Irwin Thompson and Jane Jacobs, who argue that uh, hunters were so reduced in status during the agricultural revolution that they turned to conquest. And this led to the fall of goddess cultures, which I think is an interesting interesting idea, especially in light of, uh, of so many discussions going on in our culture today about uh, what happens when, uh, when roles and peoples who traditionally felt more empowered uh, 
feel less empowered. So the idea here is that you've got all these people with these hunting instincts, mm-hmm. uh, especially predominantly men with hunting instincts that are not really very necessary anymore. Right. Like we, you know, we've got plenty of grain. We don't we don't need to hunt. And in fact, there aren't even all that many animals around for you to hunt anymore. So what are you going to do? Well, you, maybe you just turn your hunting instinct on people and right. you say, I'm going to become a, a, a warrior now instead. Yeah, the rise of the warrior class. Now, uh, meanwhile, feminist historian uh, Gerda Lerner, she uh, blames the form, blames all of this on the formation of the arc of archaic states. So the idea here is that you had the, the, through the necessity of centralized power, you end up resurrecting the role of the alpha male. You need some sort of decision maker at the the, the heart of it. And Lyndon Lerner also argues argues that uh, slavery ties into all of this because slaves would have been of little use during uh, in hunter gatherer culture, but when you uh, have agriculture, this gives slaves value, and so the former hunters they uh, they turn first people into slaves and then women specifically into uh, subservient people. Now, Schlein opposes this. He says that it doesn't account for the numerous goddess-based societies uh, that thrived during this period. And he says, you know, why were there slave-owning archaic states built around goddesses then? Mm -hmm. And so Schlein argues that, yes, there's a change going on here, but it's a change coming from within. And it all ties in to the hidden cost of literacy. Okay, well, I think we should end our first part there. And in the next episode, we're going to look at a little bit of the historical evidence that Schlein uses to support his hypothesis. And we're going to discuss some criticisms of the argument, both uh, criticisms of reviewers and some critical thoughts of our own. In the meantime, be sure to head out over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That is the mothership. That's where you'll find all the episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, as well as links out to our various social media accounts. And I'll always remind everyone, hey, if you want to support the show, a great way to do it is to rate and review wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producers, Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us to give us feedback on this episode or any other, to share your thoughts, to share topics you think we maybe should cover in the future, or just uh, just to say hi, you can email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.